<laughs> Thank you, though. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, all right, uh, my name is Megan Brenner. For those of you who I have not met before, I'm one of the faculty um, in trauma and critical care um, in vascular surgery. And I'm just going to talk briefly um, about some of the things that we're doing with endovascular and trauma, which have a lot of translational uh, value when it comes to um, medical uh, emergencies, medical hemorrhages, uh, and, and things like that. So I'll go ahead and get started. Um, I'll talk about the problem, essentially the hemorrhage uh, problem, why we have it, um, a history of pre and uh, endovascular treatment um, of hemorrhage. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the translational research, which has been done uh, mostly through the military and has given us um, just outstanding um, conclusions and uh, basically a lot of statements that suggest that um, hemorrhage control uh, using catheter-based therapy is a great, uh, a great idea. I'll talk about what's in the literature today. I'm going to go over quickly some training um, for the procedure and talk about uh, clinical research and product development uh, very quickly. So statement of the problem, hemorrhage remains the leading cause of death uh, in civilian and wartime trauma. Vascular disruption, um, again, not surprisingly, uh, unfortunately is a very uh, large cause of potentially preventable deaths. Um, I think the quote uh, from the military is about 20% uh, of deaths uh, from hemorrhage are potentially preventable. Traditional options for trauma patients uh, with exsanguinating hemorrhage below the diaphragm have been an ED thor, a standard ED thoracotomy uh, with aortic cross clamp, uh, either in arrest or prior to laparotomy, uh, and or pelvic packing if the hemorrhage is from uh, from the pelvic uh, pelvic area. So laparotomy in the ED uh, with proximal control uh, has not led to uh, fantastic results. You've all seen it, done it. Uh, not usually a happy ending uh, there. So dismal outcomes from that. Uh, some old papers that have talked about this topic. Um, you see this archaic aortic cross clamp that has been used uh, in the past. Um, again, there, there, there's noted to be advantages to aortic occlusion prior to laparotomy before the abdomen uh, t abdominal tamponade is released. Uh, continued cerebral and coronary perfusion is one of them. Uh, avoiding catastrophic cardiovascular collapse uh, with laparotomy is another. Uh, and also proximal aortic control, not surprisingly, decreases blood loss. Uh, Maddox uh, and partners examined the role of laparotomy in the ER for abdominal hemorrhage. Uh, they looked at 51 patients with ED thoracotomies prior to laparotomy for exsanguinating hemorrhage below the diaphragm. Uh, survival rate was uh, zero. So the question, is there a better way? Obviously there is a better way, otherwise I wouldn't be up here uh, speaking about this. So you've all hopefully heard about uh, Rabot resuscita resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. Uh, essentially. Uh, access, just like we would for, uh, you know, any femoral arterial line, uh, access in the common femoral artery using a guide wire uh, and balloon catheter. The balloon is advanced into the aorta. Uh, it's inflated either at the level of the diaphragm or the level of the aortic bifurcation, and it all depends on where your hemorrhage is coming from. So in our primary survey with trauma patients, we do the chest x-ray, the fast x-ray, the pelvic x-ray to help us determine where we think this exsanguinating hemorrhage is coming from. That way we know where to inflate the balloon. Um, the balloon itself today that we have on the shelf that is FDA approved is uh, enormous. It goes through a 12 French sheath in the artery. Um, it is, uh, its sole purpose is to occlude the aorta, so it doesn't function to do anything else. Um, it is a compliant balloon and the maximum diameter is about 32 millimeters. So 
unlikely that we ever inflate it to 32 millimeters uh, based on our, our patient population. Uh, their distal aortas sometimes are as small as 1.2 centimeters, so we certainly don't inflate it uh, too much. The only purpose is to provide um, aortic, essentially aortic cross clamping. So the first time that this was done, uh, 1954, at least the first time that it was reported to be done, was in the war uh, by a trauma surgeon, Colonel Hughes, uh, who attempted placement in uh, three patients that were exsanguinating. He did state there was a temporary rise uh, in blood pressure at the time. Unfortunately, he described waiting too long to try this out, which is that he had tried it sooner. Uh, but again, it's been, it's been around for a very, very long time. Uh, obviously, 1954 was before the development of all the endovascular technology, which has since improved uh, this technique. So pre-intervascular era, there was uh, a few groups that, are, that have tried it um, and reported uh, some decent survival rates in patients that were, were dying uh, of hemorrhage and had Reboid performed. Unfortunately, these are small case series, no case comparisons, no case match controls. Uh, but again, this, this was attempted before the endovascular era came along. And then the endovascular era really pushed Reboa to, uh, to what we know it is uh, today, especially in the vascular surgery realm. Um, this is essentially the first step uh, of a ruptured AAA. When the patient gets taken to the OR, the first step is balloon up, uh, regardless of whether it's going to be an open or an endovascular treatment. The, the first step is aortic, aortic control with, the, with, the, with balloon occlusion. So Greenberg and Molina, these are two of the sentinel papers in the vascular literature that describe this technique thoroughly uh, and completely. And the survival rates for ruptured AAAs have essentially been cut in half uh, with this procedure. So again, based on the same kind of similar physiology to our trauma patients, we have this exsanguinating hemorrhage from below the diaphragm that really can be, uh, can be minimized uh, or improved uh, potentially with, uh, with Reboa. Uh, so translational research, I mentioned um, a lot of this has been, uh, has occurred in San Antonio. Dr. Todd Rasmussen has been uh, instrumental in developing his, his animal lab and all this translational research uh, comes from him. Um, the one study that they did on the swine actually took the, um, did, did specific uh, resuscitative thoracotomy with aortic cross clamping and compared it directly to pigs that had Raboa done. Not surprisingly, their physiology was much improved, less, less acidotic, uh, lower serum lactate, lower PCO2 levels, and the, uh, the swine required less fluid and pressors during that resuscitative phase. Uh, another uh, example, uh, they used a severe splenic laceration uh, in a swine model, uh, did Raboa versus fluid resuscitation. Not surprisingly, again, the Raboa group, more survivors, higher mean arterial pressure, lower lactate levels. And they also found no difference um, in bowel and renal ischemia between no Reboa and Reboa groups. So that's hitting on a highlight of, you know, a big question mark that we still have with Reboa. What is the consequence of ischemia? What's the consequence of, of cross-clamping, uh, effectively cross-clamping cross the aorta um, on the ischemic times, uh, especially for visceral ischemia and extremity ischemia? So if we also look in the literature, there are several um, just simple case reports uh, really describing a wide variety of uses for this in different patients. But the common thread is that they are all exsanguinating from below the diaphragm. So we have, uh, you know, liver tumors. We have, uh, for OB patients uh, that are hemorrhaging, we have sacral tumor resections. Um, lots of different examples that this is being used for uh, and can be used for. Obviously, the people um, in these case reports, the physicians had called their uh, interventional specialists to come in and help them do this. Uh, but it actually, you know, in, in, in all these case reports, they've, they've reported good outcomes. 
not surprisingly, that's why they reported it, but um, it certainly suggests, you know, again, no great data, but certainly suggestive that this could be um, exceptionally beneficial for even non-trauma patients that are, that are suffering from exsanguinating hemorrhage. Um, so in France, uh, they have uh, done some studies and came out with a, a decent uh, case series, 13 patients, severe pelvic fractures and refractory hypertension. So in France, the trauma surgeons and the interventional radiologists take in-house call together. So they're both available 24-7, um, and especially as soon as these patients come in. So the aortic occlusion balloon was actually performed by IR uh, because they are in-house, they are, they are present at the time the patients arrive. Um, they quoted a 46% survival. Again, no case match controls, but for severe patient, for severe pelvic fractures, obviously we see these patients uh, routinely. They are <coughs> severely hypotensive, if not pre-arrest, um, and the uh, the Reboa certainly uh, certainly helped out. So the question is, where is the interventionalist when we need them? We don't live in France. We don't have interventional radiology taking call with us at night, um, so they're usually not not in the uh, in the hospital. So. Uh, the solution to this problem we have uh, we are trying to uh, <laughs> to solve is to bring the procedure to the bedside. So those of us that are taking care of patients in the hospital 24/7, uh, you know, you're covering the ICUs, we're covering the the TRU. These are these are the patients that that have this problem. These are the patients with the massive GI bleeds, with the ruptured visceral aneurysms, with the severe pelvic fractures. Um, so those are, that, that's a big problem, right? We have the tools, we have the techniques, but we don't have the people uh, at, the, at the hospital at the time that they are, they are required. Um, so the solution is, is clearly to bring the technique uh, to ourselves um, as trauma and acute care surgeons. Uh, it's very, well, it's just gonna happen. The ER docs are gonna be able to do this um, at some point in the future once the technology gets better. Um, I would advocate that any critical care trained physician knows how to do this, learns how to do this procedure. Again, once the technology gets better, this will be a percutaneous procedure. Unfortunately, right now, uh, it is mostly not uh, a percutaneous insertion, and it is 100% of the time requiring an open groin cut down for removal uh, and repair of the common femoral artery. So, um, you know, that's, that's the future of this, this procedure. Um, the training, we have found, um, obviously, in the the reports in the literature. Um, we had a great grand rounds this morning by Dr. Boyer, who's uh, a huge advocate of simulation training. Uh, talked a lot about the benefits. We've seen that here as well. We've taught our uh, trauma, trauma faculty um, basically how to perform Reboa. Um, we now have a course that runs uh, once a month uh, on the simulator as well as a cadaver uh, in order to, um, to instruct uh, Reboa so that everyone uh, is, is familiar and comfortable uh, in being able to do it. So we developed this algorithm here uh, for trauma patients, and uh, we basically tried to identify who would benefit from Reboa. So patients that come in that are hypotensive, um, defined by a systolic pressure of less than 90, they have to be partial or non-responders. This is not a procedure that, you know, patients are wheeled into the TRU and all of a sudden we're just putting a balloon up there. The exception to that is the ones that come in and arrest, but that's, uh, that's a different situation. So access to the common femoral artery, just like we would do for a femoral arterial line, is the first step. Um, that, that femoral A-line that we place, that just, you know, we grab a femoral A-line kit off the shelf, and it's that same catheter that the wire goes through for Roboa. So our first step is essentially already done once we have access to the common femoral artery. So we go through our primary survey. We check out the chest X-ray, do the FAST, Again, this is all in an attempt to try and find out where, <coughs> excuse me, where the hemorrhage is coming from so we know where to inflate the balloon. 
So if the chest X-ray is negative and there's a positive FAST, we're pretty, pretty comfortable assuming that the hemorrhage is from below the diaphragm. So at that point, we place the balloon and inflate it at the level of the diaphragm. So essentially cross-clamping the, uh, cross the aorta at the diaphragm. If the FAST is negative, the chest X-ray is negative, but there's a severe pelvic fracture and we have no other source of refractory hypotension, we assume that the bleeding is coming from the pelvis. We inflate the balloon at the level of the aortic bifurcation. So this is, again, our first run at, at some sort of uh, algorithm. It's probably going to change as we get more data. We may decide to split it up into blunt uh, and penetrating uh, algorithms. Um, <clears throat> but this is certainly what, uh, what we follow here today. Um, we do have a few cases. Uh, these are trauma patients, but again, um, you know, the important thing to remember is that we are doing this uh, to control exsanguinating hemorrhage. So again, can that be a non-traumatic event? Absolutely. You've all seen patients in the ICU that are, you know, you, you call IR, you're waiting for, for them to come in and embolize, you know, some splenic eruption or a visceral aneurysm or something of that sort, and unfortunately it takes them a little bit of time, and in the meantime the patient's exsanguinating, you're pouring in as much blood as possible, they're persistently hypotensive. So again, this is a great, great strategy for these patients uh, in the ICU. Um, so the materials for the training that we use, um, they're essentially uh, the simulator, which I talked about, and also uh, the cadaver portion of the lab uh, training, which really is important in order to get uh, the concept of a groin cut down and repair the common femoral artery. Uh, but when we treated, or when we trained uh, the trauma faculty, uh, they, are, they were all considered novice interventionalists, right? So you have to have 600 interventional procedures to be considered an expert, which um, none of the, the trauma faculty had had. So we trained them on a simulator and found that, uh, you know, regardless of being novice interventionalists, they can still uh, improve procedural time and knowledge. And actually, novice interventionalists can become, at least on the simulator, uh, they can add a specific skill set to their skill set to their existing core competencies. So, having that in the back pocket just gives us another tool to use uh, for trauma patients uh, in the TRU. So, the training uh, we just that just added validity to the um, the virtual reality simulation portion of the piece. Um, again, novice interventionalists can benefit significantly from training on the simulators, uh, and the experience of the operator does not affect performance outcomes uh, as measured by virtual reality simulation. Uh, so again, our course is offered once a month uh, and involves both uh, cadaver and simulator uh, portions uh, in order to teach the procedure. So I call it bridging the gap uh, because, as, as I said before, the, you know, we have the tools and techniques on one side, and then we have the, uh, the physicians who are in the hospital but have not been formally trained how to do this. Uh, so when we bridge the gap, what did we find? Obviously, the robo is going up everywhere. So between the time that we trained um, the trauma faculty and now, um, I think we're up to number 31. We placed 31 robots in trauma patients, and another four have actually been placed by uh, the faculty in the ICU or in the OR in non-trauma patients. So I know there's been a situation in the ICU where there was a necrotizing pancreatitis patient, you know, eroded into the splenic artery, blew out in the ICU, um, and you know, at the bedside, this can be done just with a, a digital X-ray machine. So it actually worked out, luckily, in the patient's favor. But again, this is this is a recurring theme. This is something that can be used in non-trauma uh, hemorrhage as well. So lots of examples <coughs> of us using uh, Reboa. Um, <coughs> our first uh, set, first series of patients we wrote up, 
Uh, we combined our series with uh, UT Houston, who was also uh, our partners uh, in Reboa doing this at the same time, teaching their faculty as well. Um, this is the first uh, six patients that uh, both of our institutions did. A um, couple of important uh, findings. Number one is that you see both penetrating and blunt mechanism. This isn't just solely for one or the other. You can see a variety uh, of different ages. Youngest is 25, 24, oldest was 62. Uh, you also notice in one particular patient, uh, that patient came in in arrest, ended up surviving um, after an operation, ended up with a nephrectomy. Uh, but again, this is, there's a, a wide spectrum of uh, possibilities for this procedure. Uh, the procedure itself did not take uh, very long, and again, these are novice interventionalists. These are, these are trauma and acute care surgeons who just learned, just learned how to do this procedure. Um, the other important thing to remember is the complications. Luckily, it's, we're, we're going to see them. Luckily, we haven't already, but we are going to. It's just a numbers game. Uh, no complications of the actual procedure. So technically, no issues, and complications-wise, no limb loss, uh, no visceral ischemia. <coughs> Uh, nothing, nothing de detrimental uh, at all. And this is, you know, obviously a good sign. It's the steepest part of the learning curve. People are just starting to learn this and starting to do this. But obviously, uh, we're, we're somehow we're, we're moving along the right track. Um, I think the bottom line is probably one of the most exciting, and that is that nobody died of hemorrhagic shock. So nobody is bleeding to death anymore. They are, they are dying. They are absolutely dying. They are care is being withdrawn. Right there, they. They've suffered severe brain injury. Um, that's certainly going to occur. But the point that they are not hemorrhaging to death is, uh, is huge. Uh, so the AAST uh, this past September, um, Laura Moore, one of our partners in Houston, combined our, 12, our first 12 robots with their first 12, came out with a, um, <clears throat> a case series of 24 patients. And then we compared them. We did a case match control and compared them to ED thoracotomy patients who had had ED thoracotomy solely for the purpose of aortic cross clamping. So ED thoracotomy is not equal. We, you can't compare apples and oranges unless you're taking the subselect group of ED thoracotomy patients that just had their chests opened for cross clamping. So that's who we're focusing on uh, in this comparison. Um, <clears throat> so it was over um, you know, an 18-month period. We excluded, obviously, those patients that had an intrathoracic source of their uh, cardiovascular collapse. Um, so in the first six, second six, and third six months, we see a huge uh, increase in use of Reboa. Um, <clears throat> went from zero to five uh, to 19. And that's as, that's as faculty were being trained, as they were feeling more comfortable doing it. Uh, so obviously, uh, that's, a, that's a great, uh, great conclusion to, to come to after, uh, after the training. So some interesting findings, the survival rate, uh, 9.7 for the resuscitative thoracotomy group, um, and 37.5 for the Reboa group, statistically significant. And again, where are they dying? So the, the ED thoracotomy groups, um, the ED thoracotomy group uh, died more commonly, most commonly uh, in the ED, not surprising. We've all seen that far too many times. They, don't, they never even make it to the OR. The Reboa patients, uh, Far less of them, significantly less of the Roboa patients died in the ED. So they, they die elsewhere. They die in the ICU, they die in the OR, but they are making it through their hospitalization longer than traditional ED thoracotomy groups. So we looked at where the patients died, and as I said before, the, uh, the resuscitative thoracotomy patients were dying more often uh, <coughs> in the ED, whereas the uh, 
the Roboa patients uh, were dying more commonly, uh, either from, you know, from care being withdrawn uh, or any other reason. Um, comparing the actual survivors, um, interestingly, 77% of the Roboa survivors went home. They were discharged to home. About the same number of the resuscitative thoracotomy survivors ended up going to rehab or skilled facilities. So there's not just an immediate, short-term, mid-term, but there also may be a long-term benefit uh, from, this, from this procedure. So, of course, we have no less than a million questions about this procedure in trauma patients. Uh, it's just starting to be done more commonly now. We're collecting data on physiology, anatomy, patient selection procedure, what technology to use. We're still trying to uh, decide what the best uh, best training modality is. We don't know any sh any long-term outcomes yet. We have some short-term data, but it's just in the form of case series and case match controls. Um, credentialing uh, institutions is another uh, another big one. So um, my partner, Dr. Joe DeBose, who's currently finishing his uh, vascular surgery fellowship at UT Houston, is um, is the PI on the uh, the Roboa study. It's a uh, essentially a multi-institutional AAST trial, and he's collecting data on both Roboa and ED thoracotomy patients to try and capture that subselect group of ED thoracotomy that we can compare directly to the Roboa groups. So where else is this being done? So Japan, uh, they've been doing this in Japan. The ED docs have been doing this in Japan for about eight years now. Um, they are interventional radiology fellowship trained emergency medicine docs. So. They literally, the patient rolls in, they have this beautiful CT scan, everything's literally within 10 feet of where the patient comes in. So the Japanese um, are far ahead of us. They also have better technology, smaller devices. This is done percutaneously. Um, and they have, uh, the problem with Japan is that they don't have any trauma. So they only, I think their, their latest case series was like 40 patients and it was over eight or 10 years. So. Uh, unfortunately, they just, they just, they don't have the, they have the skills, they have the training, but they just don't see the number of patients to make this a very routine thing. But they certainly believe it and their results are, um, are outstanding. So right now they're ahead of us, obviously not surprisingly. Um, thanks to the FDA, we are far behind everybody that's doing this. Um, so this is their algorithm. Obviously, I don't expect you to understand what that says, but the purpose is that they also follow uh, a very similar algorithm um, they've been doing this for a while. Um, again, it's the ER physicians that are doing this, the ones that are interventional radiology trained. Um, and again, it's a percutaneous procedure uh, right now. So in the UK, they are also far ahead of us. They've got a smaller device. Uh, Royal London Hospital has been on a, uh, a bit of a streak lately. They have the, the, London, um, the London Air Ambulance where an ED doctor goes out with the paramedics and they've done four beds for bedside, four roadside Roboas in the past, I think about eight months, uh, and two of them have survived. So the most recent one they did was last weekend, um, a 24-year-old young girl cyclist with a horrendous pelvic fracture, um, essentially near arrest on the road. Uh, they flew out, put on a Roboa, brought her back to, uh, to London, and ended up saving her. She lost a leg, but she's uh, certainly alive. So that was, the, that was their second um, surviving uh, roadside Roboa. So that's where this is going. We just have to catch up in this country with the technology uh, and also with the training. So this is just a kind of a schematic of, um, again, what I stated before goes into the common femoral artery uh, and goes up and occludes the aorta.
So they, the first one that they did, the first survival that they did, they reported in the, um, in the BBC. And of course, you can go online and watch the video and just learn it from the video. Then you can just try it at home. But I don't recommend that. So um, again, this is a beautiful, small balloon that can be inserted percutaneously that is not available in this country. So we are uh, a little bit behind. I can't say that enough, I don't think. Um, so the future in this country, where are we at with devices here? So as I said before, what we use now is off the shelf. It's FDA approved. It's used most often in vascular surgery with the rupture AAA patients. Um, but we are working uh, furiously in trying to get this one through the FDA currently, um, shooting for a, uh, hopefully shooting to be on the shelves by this fall. Um, so this is about half the size of the device we use now. It goes through a seven French sheath. Uh, we were adamant about the seven French size because that's the maximum cutoff that we can just pull and hold manual pressure. Anything above seven requires uh, cut down, open repair, or a, f a fancy closure device, and those are usually fraught with difficulty. So we stay, wanted to stay away from those completely. So it's a fluoro-free uh, device. The, uh, the sheath is a seven French. It's placed in the common femoral artery percutaneously. You can use your ultrasound landmarks however you like to place uh, arterial access. Once you have arterial access, the seven French sheath goes in. It's just a short sheath. And this is a one-pass device. There's no wire that needs to go up first. There's no, um, it's, it's hopefully, <laughs> hopefully going to turn out to be uh, really a great device. So it, it has the properties of both the wire uh, and the balloon catheter. So if you'll notice this, this is like, uh, you know, like a rosin tip wire, very soft, flexible, fle flexible plastic. So it inserts up and is atraumatically inserted into the aorta. Um, you'll notice a small nick here in the plastic. That's the A-line tracing. So because there's no wire coming out of this, which we, stand, we, we have now, this can be, this can be uh, used to transduce an arterial line. So, uh, arterial pressure, I'm sorry. So you can have a correct uh, arterial pressure tracing above the balloon, so before it's, before it's occluded and after it's occluded. Uh, there's going to be markings on, uh, on the actual catheter so we can externally, we can use our external landmarks and uh, just take a look on the, on the catheter and see how far we have to insert it. Because we're not doing this under fluoroscopy, we're just using an x-ray to check it. So we're using our external landmarks and we'll be able to use the hash marks on here uh, to help us out. And then again, there's of course the balloon part. So the hope and the goal is to make this a completely percutaneous procedure. Uh, can be done in the field, roadside, bedside, wherever, with a ultrasound guided if needed for access. Um, confirmation and placement will hopefully not need to occur if, if the procedure is done correctly and the external landmarks are followed. Um, so this has obviously, not surprisingly, a lot of future uh, applications. Uh, people are working on you know, some ultrasound guided techniques, magnetic field devices, combinations of infusion, resuscitation, and occlusion. There's a lot of, um, a lot of interest in, in medical arrest for, for technology like this for, uh, you know, for uh, resuscitation, infusion. Everyone wants one device to do everything, but it's impossible to develop something to fit through such, such a small sheath. So we have to be pretty careful about what is the most important thing uh, that is required uh, for the patient. Uh, Wire-free devices, um, as I said before, we're trying to, uh, you know, come up with ways that we can we can do this without without an X-ray machine and do it safely. So in the future, 
as I said before, trauma and acute care surgeons performing this now, being trained now, uh, because this is this is a procedure today that does require an operation, requires a trip to the operating room. Uh, but in the future, hopefully, with this with this device, um, ER uh, docs should hopefully be all trained and comfortable doing this. Uh, Pre-hospital medics, obviously, there's a huge demand, especially in the military, for this type of um, this type of hemorrhage control. Uh, you know, they're the ones that have the data saying there's 20% potentially uh, preventable hemorrhagic death. So this is where Reboa can fit in nicely. Um, so in summary, Reboa is a potentially life-saving procedure. It may replace ED thoracotomy, but for very specific and select indications. Uh, advances in technology will obviously improve safety and broaden the indications and spectrum of technicians that are using this. In the distant future, will it ever become the standard of care? We don't know that today. Uh, but we certainly need to investigate all the consequences that come along with this procedure, um, including the physiologic ones, procedural, technical, uh, as well as credentialing. So, thank you. If you guys have any, uh, any questions, I do um, want to, again, I have no data to show how this can work so wonderfully in non-trauma patients, but this is where this is going. So this is by some people who call it a large femoral A-line. I mean, it's, it's not far from that. So hopefully we can get all of you guys that are interested, involved, uh, get, get you all trained in how to do this. Um, we'd love for everyone who takes care of any ICU patient in this building uh, to know how to do this uh, at the bedside uh, if needed. So that's, this, that's where we're going. This is awesome. Yeah, it's really great that you're uh, involved in this, really cutting edge and interesting. So looking at uh, um, the time to operative repair after placement, what have you seen and read, and like what, what's your window for getting the OR, getting definitive repair? So the answer to that really depends on what their issue is. So if, if a patient is, has you know, a splenic avulsion, they come into the TRU, they have a splenic avulsion, their fast is positive, I mean, we wheel them down you know, 30 feet to the OR, we can take care of that, do an X-lap fairly quickly. It gets a little bit more complicated when they require an endovascular uh, intervention. It just takes a little bit longer um, to get that patient ready, to get the OR ready, to get the devices ready. It's not too long, but it's certainly, it's not as, it's not as though we'd roll them down and just unzip their belly. So yeah. it, it takes a little bit more time. But this is why Robo is so crucial, is that it just buys us the time that we need you know, otherwise the patient wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. They would not, they would just wouldn't make it. And that's what we found with the case series. They're making it further into the, into their hospitalization. So instead of dying in the ED, they're dying in the ICU uh, and later, but not of hemorrhage. So we can control the hemorrhage long enough. And for those people, you know, eventually this is going to be something that, uh, you know, an ED doc in the middle of nowhere will be able to do in order to get that patient flown to somewhere where they can, where they can, you know, achieve hemostasis. However, that's going to be. So. And, and in the field, the uh, when you don't know necessarily the exact source of hemorrhage, do they just go up to aortic zone one and, and start there, and then uh, and leave it there until definitive evaluation? Yeah. So the ones that they've done in the field uh, so far have been for known. So an ED doc is going with them with an ultrasound, doing the fast. The fast is negative. They have visible pelvic injuries, so they're placing it at the, at the bifurcation. There's nothing wrong with placing it higher if you're not sure, which is the luxury. You can always put it higher at the level of the diaphragm until you know, further investigation can be, can be found. But that's what's so wonderful about the FAST 
the fast exam and, and they have and GE so, has yeah. those portable ultrasounds now that people can just take out and um, you know and, and use in that in that way so and I guess can you tell by the arterial tracing let's say if you go too low start out there and I assume that if you're hemorrhaging somewhere else you'd have less blood flow to the actual tip <coughs> of the catheter itself and if you advance forward I assume your tracing would be better I mean, I assume, but in the field again, I guess you aren't looking at tracings necessarily. And I think in the field, their their only goal is to place it, put it safely high. and put it high. If they can pull it down and they see an, a negative ultrasound, a negative fast, then that's great. But the goal, obviously, at the roadside is just to prevent them from arresting right there. Yeah. So even if it just goes in and goes up high, that's great. It can always it can always be moved down lower. So that's the good news. So yeah, John. I just have two questions. One, so is there? So the um, I'm going to answer your second question um, first. If um, so, right now because we don't, I mean, we, we're assuming that there's contraindication. So um, obviously, we wouldn't do it if there was a traumatic thoracic aortic injury, and that the best. Now, the best assessment we have of that is mechanism plus chest x-ray. So that's why in our algorithm, if there's a widened mediastinum or anything like that, we tend to just, that's probably not a good idea. If there's a minor aortic injury that we're not going to see on chest x-ray, it's unlikely that a cross clamp would do significant damage. So I think we're okay with that. Um, the other contraindications would be basically anything, any open hemorrhage above literally above the diaphragm. So open extremity, upper extremity is obviously the contraindication. So it's just basically the same times that you would want to cross clamp the aorta at this level or at the bifurcation would be when you can use that. So the contraindications would be the same. But again, we don't have any data that says it's the wrong thing to do. Um, we actually, Dr. Stein and, and Dr. Glazer just put one in on New Year's Eve with a near complete aortic transection at the level of the renals. And it still went up without a problem. So I would not have guessed that that would have would have worked so well, but it did, and you know that's it's why we're trying to collect as much data as possible so we can give give some better recommendations. Um, and then the first one, you know, timing to hemostasis. Obviously, the goal is to get get them somewhere as quick as possible. So um, no one has the right answer in terms of how long the balloons can stay up, how long you know when they have to come down. Um, there's there's some animal lab evidence that you know putting the balloon up and down can be detrimental, but again, it's animal models, not, not translatable quite yet. So, um, you know, once we have the translational research that can answer those questions, you know, that we'll be able to do a better job with that. But right now, we're just trying to prevent exsanguination. That's literally, you know, there's a little bit of visceral ischemia that comes along with that, a little bit of, you know, extremity ischemia. You know, we can say, well, we have an alive patient, we can, we can hopefully deal with the repercussions of that, but again, that's why it's such a huge question mark. We have no idea. So, hope that helps. Sorry, it's not very informative, but <laughs> we don't have enough data yet. So, all right. That's great, man. Thank yeah. you. Thank you.